Hello everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and today I have a pretty big show for you. I'm going to be talking about a man named Tisquantum, who was more commonly known as Squanto. He was a member of the Patuxet tribe who lived on the western coast of Cape Cod Bay. Tisquantum is best known for establishing communications between European settler invaders and the Native American population of southern New England. He taught the settlers how to survive in the New World. Now, let's talk for a minute about the expression New World, and I use air quotes when describing that. Um, I low-key hate that expression. Uh, People were living in the North and South American continents for centuries, Thousands of histories we will never know, and thankfully quite a few that we do know, and countless languages spoken from the Arctic to the shores of the southern tip of Tierra del Fuego. Like, these continents had people living on them for centuries, thriving cultures existing for years, while Europe forever dwelled in the Dark Ages. Now, maybe some of y'all are like, okay, well... How do I refer to America before it was America, or Canada before it was Canada, etc.? Well, you could refer to it just like that. I I find myself saying America before it was America. Um, And, you know, I'm no expert, as I will be the first to state, but I am familiar with the term Turtle Island, which is used either to describe the Earth itself or North America. And it is commonly used, or... It is used by some indigenous and First Nations people. Uh, The term has also become popular among non-native environmental activists. Um, American author and activist Gary Snyder uses the term to refer to North America, stating that the term synthesizes both indigenous and colonizer cultures, but translating the indigenous name into the colonizer's language. The Spanish being... Isla Tortuga, Snyder argues that understanding North America under the name of Turtle Island will help shift conceptions of the continent. I've also noticed um, on social media a lot of uh, BIPOC, which uh, stands for uh, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Hikers. Uh, They will refer to a land as the ancestral home of, and then say said tribe, or the occupied land of, and then said tribe. So for example, I myself, I live in the ancestral lands of the Salish people, or I live on occupied Salish land. Now I chose this day being American Thanksgiving uh, to also talk about some of the history involved in the creation of this holiday. Initially, it was uh, difficult to find articles about Tisquantum that were not largely based in mythology or have some sort of religious context to it. Um, and a lot of what we do know about Tisquantum is from a European reference, um, or European references. So unfortunately, we don't have any surviving documents of his own word. Um, Tisquantum is known for having converted to Christianity. And to this day, certain religious associations celebrate the, this conversion as being positive, which If you know anything about forced religious conversion and that history, um, it is anything but positive. Uh, Initially, I was worried in my search, but um, I did find quite a bit of info, not necessarily regarding Tisquantum uh, necessarily, but about those initial settlers, uh, the indigenous people involved, and 
the kind of monolithic creation of this holiday we know today. Um, I did find a few reliable resources, and I hope that what I share with you today will make you reflect on your place in this country, which this country is stolen land. I really wanted to do something for my podcast regarding this topic and other indigenous topics as well, um, as I, I really did not want my focus to be solely on European history or monarchy. Um, all history is fascinating to me, and there is so much as Americans that we are unaware of in our own country's history. However, as I was researching uh, and struggling with the pronunciation of certain words, I wondered if I should be the one telling this story at all. I'm not indigenous. I am a colonizer and have that very real history in my blood and in my generational traits that have been passed down for, for I don't know how long. Um, I do not speak nor pretend to speak for any indigenous person, and my mission in this podcast is to bring light to parts of history that remain unknown by so many. I will do my best in telling what I have found, and I apologize ahead of time for any names I may mispronounce, and I encourage you all to seek out indigenous people and organizations to follow um, to definitely learn more about this topic. Tisquantum's name may not have been his actual name, but rather a title. Scholars remain undecided about the meaning of his name, but generally agree that it had something to do with supernatural power and was associated with the entity known as Manitou, the great good spirit of the world, referenced by the Algonquian language spoken by the Patuxet and other tribes from present-day Canada to Virginia. Squanto was a derivative of Tisquantum, likely given to him by Englishman William Bradford. We do not know much of Tisquantum's life before European contact. It is assumed he was born around the year 1585. As previously stated, he was a member of the Patuxet tribe. The Patuxet were a native band of the Wampanoag tribal confederation. They lived primarily in and around modern-day Plymouth, Massachusetts, and were among the first tribes who encountered Europeans. Now let me tell you a little bit of what we know about Tisquantum's home. Tribes who lived in the region of southern New England are recorded as referring to themselves as Ninimisinuak, meaning people and signifying familiarity and shared identity. The Patuxets occupied the coastal area west of Cape Cod Bay, and he is recorded as telling an Englishman that there were once 2,000 people in his community. They spoke a dialect of Eastern Algonquian, which was a common language to tribes as far west as current-day Rhode Island. The term Patuxet refers to the site of Plymouth, Massachusetts, and means at the Little Falls. The tribes that made up the Ninimisinuak were presided over by one or two sachems. Sachem is another term used to describe a chief. The sachem's functions were to allocate land for cultivation, manage trade with other sachems or distant tribes, to dispense justice, and to collect and store tribute from harvests and hunts, as well as to lead into war. Sachems were advised by principal men of the community called Atascawag. They are referred to as nobles by the colonizers. There was a class called the Penisasak, 
among the Poconokets, which collected the annual tribute to the Sachem, led warriors into battle and had a special relationship to their god, who was invoked in powwows for healing powers. Big surprise to no one, but the colonizers equated this act with the devil. There was also a class of priests. It is suggested that Tisquantum was a Panisisak, which I know I'm probably saying that word incorrectly, I apologize. Uh, this class may have produced guardians or protectors of sorts. Uh, Southern New England Algonquins uh, were considered sedentary cultivators. They grew enough for their own winter needs and for trade, especially to northern tribes, and enough to relieve the colonizers' distress for many years because the colonizers could neither hunt nor garden successfully. In fact, they were kind of only okay at catching fish and shooting their muskets randomly. When Tisquantum was a young man, he was lured by an Englishman named Thomas Hunt in 1614. Thomas Hunt was an employee of sorts to infamous creep John Smith. Smith had left for England and left Thomas Hunt in command of the second ship that was to haul cod to sell to the market in Malacca, Spain. However, Hunt had decided to enhance the value of his shipment by adding, and I cringe when I say this, but human cargo. He sailed to the village of the Patuxet and not only lured Tisquantum, but 20 other men onto his boat by offering a trade. Tisquantum spent at least six weeks in the dark belly of a ship, chained to his brothers and given barely enough food and water to keep them alive. After landing in Spain, Thomas Hunt attempted to sell the men on the slave market with little success. The intervention of a religious order of friars discovered what he was doing, and they took the remaining men to be instructed in the Christian faith. Now, I don't see these friars as being saviors in any sort of the sense. If they were acting in good conscience, what they would have done is they would have cared for the Patuxet men, demanded Thomas Hunt and other slave traders be persecuted, and sent them right back, uh, back to their home, but they didn't do that. Uh, Spain was very much in the thralls of the Spanish Inquisition, which persecuted many through torture and expulsion. This was not a safe place at all. I can't say what happened within the, I assume they were sent to a monastery, the men that were taken, but it was not good. Enforcing religion and stripping one of their culture and identity is an evil act. And we see this in the Christian boarding schools that Indigenous and First Nations children were forced to go to in Canada and in America. There is no record of how long Tisquantum lived in Spain, or what life was like for him, but he did find a way to England. William Bradford, eventual governor of Plymouth and a man who claimed to know Tisquantum the best, recorded that he had lived in Cornhill, London, with a man named John Slaney, who was a merchant and shipbuilder who became another of the mercantile colonizers of London, who had hoped to make his money from various colonizing projects and was an investor in the East India Company. John Slaney was someone who had access to a passage back to Tisquantum's home. Tisquantum likely did what he could to appease Slaney, Tisquantum bided his time by charming his host and earning celebrity as a novelty. The presence of a native man fascinated Londoners. No doubt he was set apart by his bronze skin and his tall stature, compared to the milksop expression and short stature of Englishmen. 
also, I can only imagine that the trauma of being around like dirty ass English people was overwhelming to to Squantum. Um, but over time, Tisquantum's faithfulness paid off, and John Slaney allowed him to travel as a guide to Newfoundland, where he met Thomas Dermer, an English explorer who brought him home in 1619. I can't imagine what he must have felt like when he knew he was returning home after living in literal hell uh, for about five years and doing what he could to survive. Very few personal details of Tisquantum's life are known, and I believe that was intentional. Uh, we don't know if he had a wife or children, or if he expected to be reunited with them upon his return. By some accounts, he was well aware of a series of plagues that had wrecked havoc on the region he called home, but how much can one prepare themselves for what he and the colonizers witnessed? Tisquantum returned to his former village that had been overtaken by weeds and was all but abandoned, but for the bones and rotting flesh of the dead, his loved ones, and his community. Now, I'm going to substitute a word in this next quote because it's not my word and I do not feel comfortable saying it. But um, this defining moment when Tisquantum finally returned to his village and brought his Englishmen with him, um, the defining moment of his return was described by Thomas Dermer in remarkably few and cold words. We arrived at my salvage's native country, finding all dead. Okay, we know Thomas Dermer did not say salvage, but rather the bad S word in, um, in describing Tisquantum. Like, he didn't even use his name. And the S word has been used to dehumanize indigenous people throughout the world. The word didn't start out meaning badass. Colonizers weren't calling indigenous people the S word as a term of endearment to describe how badass they were. In fact, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, indigenous people were referred to as merciless Indian S. The word was used to dehumanize indigenous people and justify genocide. Continuing to use this word is disrespectful and disregards the systemic oppression and racism that indigenous people still face today. Tisquantum moved easily among the English settlers, but he was under a watchful eye from various tribes, including a powerful trusted advisor by the name of Hubavok, who belonged to the inner circle of Wasmakan, a leader in the Wampanoag, Hobomoke established a small compound with his family near the English settlement, where they could keep an eye on them. Tisquantum was cast in the role of interpreter. He was more helpful to the English than his own people. He assisted in the construction of the Treaty of Peace between the settlers and the Wampanoag. Bradford outlined the treaty in the following terms. 1. That neither he nor any of his should injure or do hurt to any of their people. Two, that if any of his did hurt to any of theirs, he should send the offender that they might punish him. Three, that if anything were taken from any of theirs, he should cause it to be restored, and they should do the like to his. Four, if any did unjustly war against him, they would aid him, and if any did war against them, he should aid them. 5. 
he should send to his neighbors confederates to certify them of this that they might not wrong them us but might be likewise comprised in the conditions of peace six that when their men came to them they should leave their bows and arrows behind them to this day there are some folks who like to look at this treaty and pass it off as being a harmless and friendly agreement however the authors penning the document in english took clear advantage of the language and cultural ambiguity to deceive osmakin who was unable to discern the not-so-subtle threat to the wampanoag sovereignty to be clear other tribes of the wampanoag were not in complete agreement of this treaty and distrusted the english newcomers as they should it should also be said that the english clearly were not doing an actual treaty this was not a, an agreement this was them basically this was the english telling the wampanoag hey this we're here and this is how we're going to do things i mean it wasn't a treaty it was just a declaration of their own bullshit um, but the english were allowed to freely walk around fully armed and blast their muskets regularly and it was a custom that was unnerving to neighboring indigenous communities the treaty also gave the english the power to punish any offender to the treaty as the wampanoag were served by their own systems of justice the new settlers law of the land would doom the wampanoag which would set the stage for an inevitable war it is unclear if Tisquantum blurred the lines when translating this treaty or was himself at a loss for meaning though i don't think that was the case uh Tisquantum had spent quite a few years in england and in europe in general i think part of how he may have adapted was by learning the customs of the english how they think how they act and of course how they do business but i also believe he that he suffered from a sort of stockholm syndrome in which the hostage uh, becomes allied with their captors the social customs of the wampanoag which included frequent visits and hospitality quickly overwhelmed the settlers who were hesitant to bestow food upon any visitor due to their limited supply the settlers or uninvited entitled guests as i refer to them uh, grew irritated by the constant visits bradford had arranged for two englishmen and tisquantum to seek a di diplomatic solution to the overly friendly neighbors edward winslow one of the englishmen stated that whereas his people came very often and very many together unto us bringing for the most part their wives and children with them they were welcome yet we being the strangers as yet at patuxet and not knowing how our corn might prosper we could no longer give them such entertainment as we had done and as we had desired to still do tisquantum and the two englishmen brought gifts to osmakin including a horseman's coat and a copper chain the wampanoag leader delighted in the coat he was politely asked i don't know how politely but he was politely asked to urge his people to be less sociable and that he and his closest companions be the main visitors to the english village if he was to send a messenger they might bring the copper chain as a sign that the visitor was authorized by osmakin himself this new protocol formalized the relationship between the english and the wampanoag but did little to help them understand one another's customs 
This is also a very English uh, thing of the settlers to ask. Um, it taught that only those of high standing were entitled to share food amongst them or any who associated with the person in command, almost imposing their own form of hierarchy on a group that had their own set of rules and laws in place. Tisquantum found comfort among the English and was ostracized from the Wampanoag. However, there could be no peace in the arms of his new community and the loss and betrayal of his own people. Tisquantum had been captured by a stagem called Corpitant. Corpitant had mocked Squanto for his close ties to the white strangers. Word reached the settlement that Tisquantum was captured and intended to kill him so as to cut out the English tongue. The Englishmen armed their militia and proceeded to reclaim Tisquantum. Everyone knew how heavily the English relied on Tisquantum, whom William Bradford referred to as being an instrument of God. Tisquantum soon became empowered by his status and used his bilingual ability to his advantage. A transgression from Edward Winslow reported in his Good News from New England, here, let me not omit one notable, though wicked, practice of this Tisquantum, who, to the end he might possess his countrymen, with the greater fear of us, and so consequently of himself, told them we had the plague buried in our storehouse, which, at our pleasure, we could send forth to what place or people we would, and destroy them therewith, though we stirred not from home." Some historians would argue that Tisquantum had manipulated his people for his own personal gain. William Bradford observed, they began to see that Squanto sought his own ends and played his own game, by putting the Indians in fear and drawing gifts from them to enrich himself, making them believe he could stir up war against whom he would and make peace for whom he would. The series of plagues that had caused significant loss for indigenous communities of that region were brought over by French and English fishermen, who were all taking up residence in that region at the time. Many of the settlers viewed this widespread of plague death as a blessing, as they would be allowed to settle more land without conflict. It is interesting to me that Tisquantum would use uh, this threat of plague against the Wampanoag and other tribes. I have to wonder if it is true that could mean Tisquantum's displacement in England caused him to fully absorb the sort of uh, scheming English violence that the settlers were long accustomed to. There's also the possibility that the settlers were the ones instigating these rumors in order to separate or to con continue further separating Tisquantum from the Wampanoag. Tisquantum's life came to an end some two years after the English had claimed Plymouth, which I'm pretty sure I mentioned before, but uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts is the land in which uh, the Patuxet tribe resided before succumbing to a series of plagues. Tisquantum was bedridden for days, and William Bradford is said to have stayed by his side. William Bradford had said of his death, In this place Tisquantum fell sick of Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take as a symptom of death, and within a few days died there, desiring the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven, and bequeath sundry of his things to English friends, 
as remembrance of his love, for of whom they had a great loss. Tisquantum was buried in the village of Chatham Port. What we know of Tisquantum is from a European perspective. He was fluent in English, but I have to wonder if he understood how to read and write in English. Not knowing how to write would have prevented any sort of preservation of first-hand documents. Or perhaps he did indeed write, and those writings are now long gone. Destroyed by the folks who he worked for and that, that had displaced him far from home. The only account we have of him asking to be sent to Englishmen's heaven is from an Englishman. The settlers were ecstatic when they heard of Tisquantum praying for salvation. Gross, 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 gross. It's not so much that I have issue with someone finding comfort in religion, but that religion should be of their choosing and not of forced conversion. When the settlers celebrated the, this conversion, they were celebrating the fact that they had destroyed this man's history and the history of his people. The very definition of conversion is to change one form to another. The settlers were celebrating not the memory of Tisquantum and the Patoxet, which was the land they occupied, um, but they were celebrating their death. I believe Tisquantum's life was tragic, um, beyond measure, and I cannot imagine what it would be like to be the last of my kind. Uh, this was a fate that would be felt by numerous indigenous and First Nations people throughout the world with the expanse of colonization. Settlers and colonizers consume and they take, and they consume Tisquantum and the generosity of the Wampanoag. Something I came across that I found super interesting, and I wish there was a bit more concrete info involved in this, but uh, Tisquantum, when he was in London, at, um, he apparently was in London at the same time as Pocahontas, and they may have met, but nothing is certain. I have to wonder what that experience must have felt like for both of them, being displaced in a foreign, violent land. Pocahontas was also known as Matoka, and she was taken to England at a young age and forced to marry a predatory Englishman who was very cruel to her. To be a fly on the wall at the interaction between these two would have been such an overwhelming and special experience, and I, I wish we had some sort of concrete info um, if they had met and what that interaction was like. Now let us talk uh, a little bit about Thanksgiving. William Bradford makes only a brief reference to this harvest feast with no mention of the participation of the Wampanoag. Edward Winslow, however, does write about the uninvited dinner guest whom for three days we entertained and feasted, no doubt in another act of diplomacy to ease the strained confrontation. In 1621, the pilgrims had their own small feast when Osmakin and his warriors showed up with a real meal and contributed to the feast. They went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. I think it's important to note that there was never like an official first Thanksgiving. What the Englishmen were actually celebrating was a small harvest that they, a small successful harvest that they had. And it might not have been in November. Um, everyone kind of guesses that it was in the fall, either October or November. But um, basically they were celebrating a small harvest, a uh, couple of, couple of corns, maybe 
some fish. I don't know what they were growing, but uh, the Wampanoag saw that they were having a party and they probably saw their feast and I was, they were like, well, that's a really piddly looking feast. So they generously brought over five deer and shared that feast with the settlers. Um, but that it wasn't ever referred to as Thanksgiving. That came much later. Also, I feel like the Englishmen had no idea how to handle someone giving them food or hospitality without wanting something in return. Uh, the English had been the ones to establish a treaty, not the Wampanoag. And I cannot speak for them, but I believe what they were doing was literally just being cautious, but nevertheless friendly and considerate. Um, the Wampanoag, obviously not the English, um, but treating the English as they would treat any neighboring community. On the third Thursday of November, American families gather together to celebrate a national day of unity and declare what they are most thankful for in a warped interpretation of the first harvest. The contemporary holiday perpetuates the myths of the Wampanoag and the pilgrim relations. It buries the truths of kidnappings, pestilence, subjugation, and ignores the tense encounters of the settlers and the tribes. President Lincoln declared that Thanksgiving would be a day to bring unity to a war-torn country and made no mention of the pilgrims. The story of the pilgrim forefathers coming to the New World had founded America for religious freedom gained steam as New England Protestants wielded the myth to gain the top spot in the country's cultural hierarchy above Catholics and immigrants, according to historian David Silverman in his book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. The myth was believed to be conjured as Americans looked for an origin story that was not soaked in blood and genocide. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Um, America was founded by both of those things, uh, blood and genocide, and the displacement of millions of people in multiple, multiple lies. Um, love America or not, or you don't love America, that is the truth of this nation. And to avoid that is just perpetuating lies and avoiding our roots. I also think it's important to add that you can love a nation or love the idea of a place while also acknowledging its past, its present, and its future and advocating for those that this nation harmed. And if you're not doing that and you claim to love this country, well, I don't think you really love it. And I think you maybe love the illusion of it and yourself. Now, Thanksgiving is celebrated with turkey and pies and the anxious arrival of Christmas, which has been marketed to the point of exhaustion by capitalists, telling one to be thankful for what they have, but to go into massive debt for the ones they love. Like with most any holiday in America, the true meaning and history behind the holiday has been perpetuated by falsehoods. Some of the first settlers of America, before it was America, were orphaned children sent over by the English. Some 300 children were sent, but only 20 reached adulthood. When one looks at the true history of settlers in early colonial times, one becomes skeptical of the choices made to lead us to where we are today. Some of you may be wondering how one explains the true history of Thanksgiving to children, without scaring them, of course. 
Um, I'm definitely not the person to ask as I do not know how to talk to kids, but I wanted to provide this information for those who have children in their lives. In my research, the first place I go to is Google and I cross-reference various articles. Um, sometimes I will watch a few YouTube videos and documentaries. I will also listen um, to other podcasts um, on topics of interest. And I came across this one podcast called uh, First Name Basis that is hosted by Jasmine Bradshaw. And this podcast was designed uh, with tools and practical strategies that one needs to talk to your children about race, religion, and culture. It is on Spotify, and I highly recommend it. Uh, recommend that to folks who want to teach truth to future generations. I'd like to add that I do have uh, show notes, but they are not available as of yet as I haven't created a social media profile for this podcast, uh, but I do plan to do so very soon. Uh, right now I am currently working on a logo, which is a lot of fun, but there's a lot of options. And once I do have that officially set up, I will be providing um, show notes and references, of course, uh, accessible to everybody. Indigenous communities are still at risk all across the world. Native American communities have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and have been greatly ignored by our actively useless government, despite needing immediate aid. This resulted in other countries donating to these communities before our own government acted on anything. I do hope you found this episode to be interesting and you learned something from it. Again, a huge apology to the names and people whose language and identity I could not correctly pronounce. I mean no disrespect, and I will do better in my future research. I hope you all reflect on this day and consider whose land you are currently occupying and what you do for the Indigenous communities. I encourage everyone, if financially able to, to consider donating to an Indigenous person, a tribe of your choosing, or perhaps an organization run by Native individuals. If you are not financially able to do so, I completely understand but perhaps you could share some information regarding Native organizations or about the land in which you occupy. Today I will be donating a small sum to the Metakwe Foundation, which was created in 2010 as a direct response to the teen suicide epidemic on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Teenage suicide is four times higher than the national average on this reservation. Pine Ridge is located in one of the poorest counties in the in the United States. Most of the difficulties that modern-day Lakota deal with, like suicide, alcoholism, poverty, and teen pregnancy, are not inherently part of Lakota culture. They are terrible byproducts of colonization, oppression, and genocide. Thank you all for taking the time and listening to this episode. I wish you all a safe and distant holiday. One day we will hopefully be reunited with each other, but until then, Please stay safe, wear a mask, and keep learning.